Dear Lord, we, we thank you um, for the, your, the, the Psalms in general, uh, for these uh, amazing um, works of prayer and praise and instruction. And um, we think particularly of the instruction we have from you as we open up Psalm, Psalm 119 today. And we pray that you would instruct us by your spirit as we think of these things, that you would guide us and bless this time and uh, that this would all be to your praise and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so yeah, turn to Psalm 119 if you haven't already. That's what we're going to be covering. Um, and I've never taught on Psalm, Psalm 119 till now. This might be my last time. I don't know. Um, I, uh, last, I, I had the opportunity two weeks ago to do Psalm 110. Um, and I think because I just need a lot more practice, I'm back at it uh, today. Um, and uh, la- Psalm 110 had a superlative of it's the most... Uh, often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Um, Psalm 119 also has a superlative, so it kind of, that's one of the things I think that drew me to it in, in addition to some other things. But it's the largest chapter in the whole uh, Bible. So I was not planning to actually uh, read the entire thing verse by verse here, so we'll take an exception from what we normally do um, because that would take up pretty much the whole time. Maybe we would have had to start about 30 minutes ago. Um, but what we're going to do is look at, um, I chose five themes. And one of the things you see in this psalm is its repetitiveness, which is kind of a, a thing you could talk about in its own right. Um, and if you have questions or, w- or we want to talk through that, we, we could do that. I don't have too much prepared on its repetitiveness, but that's certainly something we should take from it. But in that, some of the repetitive themes that I thought were noteworthy we'll cover and use that as an opportunity to read sections associated with each of those, um, with each of those five themes that we're covering. Uh, those aren't an exhaustive set of the themes covered here. Um, this, one of the reasons it's tough to teach is because it's really kind of impossible to outline this, this chapter because um, it just kind of keeps you know, uh, going all, all over the place, um, but with a lot of great content. And that's another reason why uh, I wanted to, to talk about because of it, the importance of its, um, uh, of its content and its themes. Um, it's arranged in a very unique way, a very, um, uh, you know, all, all the psalms are, are poetry, of course, but it's a, uh, a certain, um, you know, that, another superlative nature of its poetry, too, that it's an acrostic, it's um, 22 sections based on uh, the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph, um, and uh, each um, letter in the alphabet gets a section, and each line in that section starts with that uh, Hebrew uh, alphabet. So that's kind of, also, I guess I was going to note also, it's, um, this is an anonymous psalm as well, um, so we don't know who wrote it, um, but... uh, doesn't really matter for for our purposes here. So the five themes, though, that I wanted to talk about are the blessedness of following God's law, um, the psalmist's love of God's instruction, um, the the suffering that the righteous have, and kind of in that same section, there's a a related theme of this focus on the wickedness and their law-breaking, and then um, how uh, God's law is fixed eternally, and um, the, the need for grace and mercy is also a theme in this law-focused uh, chapter. So with that said, why don't we start with the first theme here, and we'll read um, section Aleph, uh, which is verses 1 through 8, right at the beginning. Um, and then we'll talk about that. So turn to Psalm 119, 1 through 8. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And so uh, I, I think uh, also I wanted to note 
you see, if you, if you look up verses 93, 98 to 100, 130, 165, and 175, you also kind of see this theme. Uh, and I want to do that in each of these sections so you see some of the repetitiveness. You can see it's covered. Um, even if you wanted to try to outline each one of these 22 sections, sometimes it's hard even within a section to say, this is the theme of that section, although sometimes it is a little bit more clear. Um, but with this one, does this remind you, the section we just read on this blessedness of the man who uh, uh, loves God's law and keeps God's law, does this remind you of any other psalms? Psalm 1, Tim was uh, uh, lifting that answer back there, yeah. So um, Psalm 1 talks about the, the blessedness of the man who you know, loves God's law and doesn't sit in the seat of uh, the scorners and uh, stand the way. I'm not quoting it exactly, but he's like this tree planted by the waters, uh, uh, you know, and just this contrast between the man, uh, the blessed man who keeps his law, who is like this, this mighty tree compared to the chaff that the wicked are like. And so um, here, here we see that theme picked up in, uh, at the beginning of this, this psalm focused on God's law. Um, but how, how are we supposed to think of this? And this is why I've got the, the confession here in, in everyone's hand. Uh, blessed is the man uh, who follows God's law. Um, what, what's the context of that? Aren't, aren't we as New Testament believers, we're not under law, but we're under grace. And therefore, this is Old Testament. This is, well, really just old. And, you know, we're, we kind of can move on. Is that, is that how we should see this? Ronnie, you, you uh, have an answer to my rhetorical questions. Go for it. I, no, I, wanted, I actually like an answer to rhetorical questions. That's good. I, I'm, I, like everything is kind of like a rhetorical question in case there's no discussion, so I encourage the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that is one use. And one of the things we'll see in the confession here in a second is there's multiple uses of the law. And that's one, one key thing, uh, both for an unbeliever to drive the unbeliever to Christ and for a believer to um, continue to see our, um, that there's nothing good in us and, and to, to look to Christ. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, who are we? That's another thing you see in Paul, right, is that, you know, there's this idea that um, because we're not saved by law-keeping, we should never interpret that to mean that um, we don't care about the law. Like, may that never be. Like, we're not lawless because of that. We're those who live to, to Christ, which is, which is you know, the law is definitional of how do you glorify God in your, in your living. Yes, sir. Right, yeah, it's good you bring that out because in our section here, we're prepared, I kind of skip over that aspect and I focus on the moral law because I think that's what this chapter is focused on, but the confession certainly brings out those differences which are important as well. Um, so I'm, good, I'm glad you said that. So it might seem like a kind of a hard right turn to now jump into the confession, but I think because this topic of the law of God is a huge topic, in scripture, you think of, um, like Ronnie said with Paul uh, and, and Kathy, with Paul uh, talking about these big issues. This is one of the things he's tackling over and over and over again. Um, and he's tackling it in a way that's nuanced. It's in a way that the, you, you can say we're not under the law but under grace, but in another way to say may lawlessness never be. May that, you know, in the harshest of terms, that should, like, get that out of your your mind. So how do we walk the road between these, and especially when we have 
all these legitimate debates have happened all the way back to the New Testament era, up to the Reformation time, and, 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 and even now, like some more errant ways, I think, with dispensationalism that tends to say everything that's Old Testament is not really for us today as Christians. All these things that are kind of floating around in the air of, of uh, modern Christianity, I think the confession does a really good job to take this huge topic of the law of God and help give us some handles. So if we can jump there, cover a few key things, and then come back to Psalm 119, and I think we can more fruitfully think of what's it like to be the blessed man um, following God's law, right, with those contextual things worked out. So turn to, uh, in your hymnal, if you've got a hymnal there, um, page 859, you don't have it, you can follow along. This is Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, uh, chapter, chapter 19 on the law of God. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read about four of the paragraphs, paragraph one, two, five, and six, and we'll just kind of have some key takeaways from each of those. So paragraph one says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Um, so here this is, you know, going back to Adam, who's in a little bit different place for us as that very first representative human. Before the fall, he's given this law um, as a covenant. If he keeps it, there's life. If he breaks it, there's death, essentially. Um, and uh, we know that he breaks it, and then we are all, um, as his posterity we read here, also under this, um, under this law as well. Um, let's, let's look to paragraph two. It says, uh, this law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six are duty to man. So, see here that um, this is a perfect law, even the confession, again, so this is written in, you know, 1600 uh, years after the New Testament, and they're saying this is a perfect rule, um, and so you can, ident you know, we ought to feel free to go back to Psalm 119 and agree with the perfection that the psalmist is seeing there. Uh, in the law. The problem with the law is, is not um, the, the content of it. The problem is our sinfulness in our hearts. Um, and then we see here uh, a little bit about what Frank was talking about. Some of the, it doesn't get into the distinctions in this paragraph, that's a little bit later. Um, but the, a moral law, a ceremonial law. So here they want to say the Ten Commandments is a certain summary uh, there's other summaries in the in the Bible, but that that is a summary, the most most important, uh, certainly the most popular summary of the law of God is is in the Ten Commandments. Um, let's go to paragraph five. So I'm skipping a couple here to stay on this. How do we think of the moral law uh, today? The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof and that not only in regard of matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of, the cre of God the creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel anyway dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So again, here, there's this forever, th this moral law binds us. We can't say, oh, well, we're Christians, and so uh, adultery is fine, and murder is fine. You know, those are things that as soon as you know, they come out your lips, you're like, of course, of course that's the case. But, you know, if you just had this question without those examples of, well, does the law bind us? We would say, well, no, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, right? And so, again, the, next, the last chapter we'll re read here from the confession helps to keep unwinding this a little bit more. But even the redeemed are still bound by this law. But we'll see not as a, not kind of back in that Adam sense of we have this covenant of works and we're trying to keep it and, garner favor and acceptance from God for it. That is not at all what we're talking about. Okay, last chapter to read, paragraph six. This one's a little bit longer, but I think, it's, I think it brings up some valuable stuff. <clears throat> Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet is it of great use to them. That's what Ronnie was starting to talk about. 
as well as to others, and that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show that uh, uh, what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The, promise, the promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So essentially this, because uh, we're still bound by this moral law in this sense, that is not saying that we are there under the law and not under the grace and, uh, and what Paul is talking about. And the main distinction there is that the law-keeping we're talking about is not this as a covenant of works. This is not keeping the law in order to, um, uh, to get this acceptance before God. I'll say that for the, the third time. Um, but again, then we don't want to fall off. That's one ditch you can fall into with the law, which is over and over again a problem throughout the history of the church and the history of religion. Um, but you jump from that ditch and you try to get on the road of, okay, how do I um, maintain this, uh, this right relationship to the law? And I say, all right, I don't want to do that, so I throw out the law. And I, and I get over here, um, and I'm in the other ditch, right? Because the law's not good, the law's not binding, um, you know, the law doesn't matter, the law's old. Those are, those are the, the very common ideas that get us in the other ditch. And that's what Psalm 119 I think, keeps us from, and that's certainly the, the confession here we're talking about as well. Um, all right, so does that make sense? Any thoughts? So we're going to jump back now to Psalm 119 with that context. Is that helpful? Any, any commentary on the, confession, the categories we saw in the confession? All right, good. Okay, so, so now we come back to this, blessed are those who walk in the way of the Lord. Um, and, and hopefully I think we have a purer way of think, thinking of that. But I guess I'd say, first off, I think we covered this, but a good question, where is Christ in all of this? We go back to Psalm 119. Blessed is this man, um, and of course a woman uh, as well, uh, who is walking in the way of the Lord. Where is Christ? Am I just focused on my walk? And, and it's this kind of... Uh, this um, summary type of thing, almost like a, a uh, Islamic, you know, weights. I've got my bad things I'm doing. I've got my good things, and it's all me. Mr. David. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, we, we said this um, thing three times of how we're not to pursue law-keeping as a covenant of works. But Christ did keep the law as a covenant of works. He did perfectly. He is the second Adam. He is the last Adam. So the way in which Adam was put to the test to uh, follow God's law and live, Christ did that. And he didn't just do it in, as kind of a spectacle and, and, and even as an um, uh, example for us, which certainly he is, and he did, but more importantly, as, um, uh, as the one who did that law-keeping on our behalf. So I think that's another key handhold on this Psalm 119, right? We ought to, with the psalmist here, um, be valuing the law of God, be studying the law of God, be striving after it, but we should um, 
all, always within the context of Christ is the only one who has kept it perfectly and has done that on our, on our behalf. Yes, sir. We should not take from this this kind of burden type of approach where, okay, now it's on me. Christ kind of did his job, and now I'm doing my job type, type of thing. Even in the um, growing uh, and sanctification, we would say, um, uh, to be more like Christ, to um, live as becomes a follower of God, we are doing that in the spirit. We're, we're always and everywhere reliant on God's spirit. Um, and that's a great point. Did someone else, David, you had a, another David in the back. Thankfulness, and, and I would say one of the great things when you meld that concept with what we see in Psalm 119 that, that can be a corrective to our general American evangelical approach is there, there's um, so much help in the law for showing us how, how to do that. What does God require of us? This, is, this kind of actually leads us to our next point here, why there's such value um, in, in um, God's God's law, because it fills up the content of what that means. It's not just this general, well, I'm loving God, and it's this vague, amorphous, kind of good feeling kind of thing. Like, he's shown us, you know, what, what becomes uh, someone who has said, yes, I am uh, turning away from my sin, and I'm following you, and I'm following Christ. So, yeah, thankfulness is, is a good thing. Let's, uh, with that said, go to the second theme here, which is... Um, this idea that the psalmist, you see it, uh, we're going to focus on verses 161 to 168, which is sin and shin. Um, I think in the handout you can see the little uh, Hebrew letter there where sin has a uh, dot on the left side at the top and the dot on the right side of shin, which makes a s or a sh uh, sound. Um, also, you can see this in verses 20, 72, 97, 127 to 28. So look those up just to kind of see some of this um, different nuances on what I, what I thought was the same theme. And another thing I should say is even these, the verses kind of li, uh, put here for Psalm 119 are not exhaustive of Psalm 119. There were so many different areas where you see these. But in these, there's this high love of God's law. You know, um, and so let, let's read about that, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, I'm not doing uh, so well about keeping, uh, just uh, going through the numbers, so we're jumping all the way to uh, the back of this psalm already, um, and then we'll jump back down. So psalm, uh, or so verses 161 to 168. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies 
I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. <clears throat> so the, one of the lines that really stood out to me here was this, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that's to be our, our um, intention and thought and spirit when we think of God's law. Um, do we do that? Do we, th this sense of, and, you know, maybe the spoil term takes it out of our, you know, we're not used to, like, plundering enemy camps so much in our day. But um, what if you were just walking around and you found, um, you know, $10,000 and it was unclaimed and it was yours in a, in a totally above board way? Wouldn't you, and this is just $10,000, uh, wouldn't you rejoice greatly at that, think of what you would think. I'm going out to dinner. I'm going to call my friends. I'm, you know, it would be so exciting. Yet here we are with this law of God, which really is far more valuable to us than $10,000. Um, and, and we don't have this, this uh, spirit. And I, and I do think, uh, in fairness, maybe to ourselves, which as a Reformed guy, I don't like to be fair to ourselves. This is, not, this is a rare moment. Um, but, but I do think there's a certain um, idealism here, a target, a setting a target for us. Because you see, even the psalmist, as he goes through, there are times when he's saying things about himself where he's obviously not doing this. Like he's, he, he's breaking God's law. It's like, well, obviously when he was doing that, he wasn't valuing God's law to this nth degree. But that's not what he wants to put. But he does put it before us in a... Um, in that reform sense of uh, kind of self-flagellation of our own works. Uh, but he puts it before us as an honesty about who he is. Um, but he, what he wants to put before us as the target and the goal, I think, is this, I, this ideal view of what we ought to have of this high esteem for God's law. Um, I, I think it's important to know, and I don't know if it's particular to this theme or not, but the... Um, the distinction also in this passage on, on um, the, the law, certainly there's this narrow sense, and I think it's the, the most direct sense of what this chapter is talking about, of the law of God with these rules and precepts. Um, but I think there's also a broader um, implication and meaning of also just the word of God, the general idea of revelation from God. And I don't mean general revelation, uh, the general idea of this special revelation, the idea that God has spoken. Um, and you see that a little bit more, kind of those general terms in uh, verses, I'm not sure if I listen in your notes, 25, 28, 81 in particular, 89 and 130. Um, just some language that's, I, I think, a little bit uh, more detached from the specific precepts. Although even in that, I, I don't feel the need with this point to totally detach it from the law because the, one of the, I think the values and the reason we're to value this is the way that the law is that giving us something that we didn't have. It is giving us what God values. That, that is important. Um, here's a question maybe for the kids. Um, I, I, we had these great, like two or three great books for like really young kids that aren't even really quite ready to speak and then kind of starting in, in the early days past that where they start to speak. And they talk about how to talk about the Trinity and the Bible and one other concept that I can't remember with, with really youngsters. And um, one of the things, and, and the one on the Bible, the, uh, the, they set up a question in this book on what if your parent, I think it says, what if your parents, you know, you knew your, they were your parents, but they never spoke to you at all. They didn't tell you, you know, what they like. They didn't tell you about the world around you. They, you know, they were there, they fed you, they did all these things, but they never spoke to you. How would you, how would you take that, kids? What would, what would that do to you? Calvin, you're smiling. Yeah. Would you feel a certain amount of being lost? What if they hadn't, uh, you know, for maybe a year, and then all of a sudden they just started talking? 
would that be value? Now, at this point, they probably had blown their whole relationship with you. But uh, <laughs> aside from that artificiality of this uh, example, you know, you can see this value that if all of a sudden the communication started happening, you see the contrast. And I think because we live under the shadow of we have this law, we, we take it for granted. Um, but we really would be like that situation with the kids and probably worse than that because this is our... Um, our eternal uh, heavenly father. Uh, and, and so I, I think with that example of the dichotomy of a, um, of a complete <clears throat> lack of God's instruction and, and, uh, and giving us things about himself, what does he care about? Um, we, we see the great value that we have. Um, and it's really everywhere, even, even in our you know, heavily secularized society, everywhere around us, I think even you know, I look back there at Matt and we have these lawyers. Like, how important is it of how we're to live in society and how we're to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, follow, not that our lawyers today are always following, you know, God's moral law perfectly, but you see still there the, the criticality in society of things like the law and how there would be madness you know, if we didn't have this, even in a society where we kind of do everything we can to kick against the goads of a right view of law, perhaps, we still um, can't get away from that. So those are some of the, the thoughts I had on this, this idea of this real value and, and esteeming the law. Are there any other thoughts you have on, on that uh, theme? May, hold, hold any answer, I guess. I'll go to... Um, a question maybe of application here. Um, so, so I guess, you know, one of the ones that's probably a rhetorical question, Ronnie, you're welcome to answer it. Do you think of God's precepts in this way, and then maybe less rhetorical, what stands in the way of this attitude, and how might you cultivate such a love of God's ways? Um, any thoughts on that? I know that maybe that's a little closer to home, if you don't want to answer, think through that, I think, throughout the day. What, what is it, if I don't recognize in myself this kind of love for, the, for God's law, how might I cultivate this? Yeah, no, it's a great point. 
which should be obvious, but we all need to hear it, and we all um, struggle in this. How, how might we cultivate this love of God's law? Well, the first thing we could do is maybe we could read it. Maybe we could study it. Maybe we could be concerned about it, right? Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Elder Scott back here. <laughs> I thought you were a big gamer. Yeah. Yeah. And praying, yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, and we have this description of God's word that it is active, it's living, and so maybe there's a sense, too, where we need to uh, uh, kind of let it sift us to where, and, and maybe we sometimes keep even God's word at bay because we are we don't want to be sifted in, in that sense. Uh, yeah. There's one. There's a hand that's been back here. It's been up for a while. I'm going to go, go there. Yeah, definitely. All right. Got, we'll go uh, here and then to Jenny, and then we're going to move on after that to, to go to the next section. Yeah, 
That's a great advice, I think, of, and something I struggle with, of having quiet space. It's so easy with a phone that can do 50,000 things to go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Oh, I'm shaving, and so there's time wasted. Let me fill that up with time. Oh, I'm you know, walking the dog. Let me fill that up with something else. And a lot of times those are valuable things to do. I don't want to say they're not, but then all of a sudden we have no time to, to think, and particularly to think and meditate on, on God's word. So that's, that's great. All right, Jenny, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, we can have a certain um, externalistic way of approaching the scriptures, and then we miss the actual value, and that, that's a great reminder. Let, let me move on here to theme three, just for sake of time, um, but thanks very much for all those thoughts on, um, on kind of the practical way of how can we love God's law more and let it, let it impact us. Those are all great, great things to consider. So theme, and I broke it into a 3A and 3B because they seem, I started with two separate ones and I don't know, they just seemed very much related but still different enough. One is on um, suffering and, and God holding us up in the midst of that suffering. And, and maybe now for time, I'll, I'll maybe read these together. Um, the other, though, is this focus on the wicked. You see the wicked over and over and over again with their, um, uh, either their lawlessness or the way in which they are um, antagonizing the, you know, uh, the psalmist here and the righteous ones. So that theme, you know, it, it's interesting that this finds its way into this. We talk about, you know, God's law and um, the high uh, and beautiful status that it has and the value it's to have, and the importance, and you know, how does the wicked wind up in there? Um, I, I think that's that's kind of fascinating, um, and I think even here. Well, let me read it, and then we'll we'll go on. Um, let's read eighty-one to eighty-eight. That's Cope. Verses eighty-one to eighty-eight. My soul longs for your salvation. And you see some of the themes we've already talked about. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And I think even here in this section, you see both of the theme, the, the sub-themes from this section I'm talking about is the, the suffering of the righteous and the, um, and the antagonism of the wicked. So maybe we'll skip reading 153 to 160, but if you wanna maybe look at it there as I'm talking uh, or later today, um, and also, 113 to 120, 51 to 53, and 95 that focus on the wicked and what they're like in this regard. Um, I talked before, too, about the, maybe the idealism that's in the psalm, um, or what's the target that we should be uh, uh, focusing on. I think another thing, though, that you see this throughout the Bible, it's an amazing book in this regard, but the realism, you know, there's not this disconnected from reality um, presentation of, well, you just follow God's law. It's like a mathematical equation. Like we, here's another ditch, right? Blessed is the man who keeps God's law, right? And then, um, oh, okay, I keep God's law and I'm always blessed. Never, nothing ever happens to me. Is that what we get from Psalm 119? No, right? So that's a ditch. So, you know, we, uh, we, obey God, and uh, bad things happen to us. Any, any examples come to mind of people in the Bible that that's happened to? Job, 
He's a great one. Anyone else? Joseph, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of important. Um, yeah, the apostles and the way, and some of that is post-New Testament, Tucker. Yeah, man, they didn't treat him well for his prophecy. What did he do to deserve that? Um, so we see this over and over and over again, including with our own Savior and even in you know, the most, the culmination of his saving works is in this, him being persecuted for, for righteousness sake, which of course is in the Beatitudes as well. So over and over and over in scripture, there's this realistic, um, it's not a health and wealth kind of gospel. Um, and so th that brought up a question for me, um, if I can find it in my notes here, um, about... <coughs> When you think of the apostles or Jesus, for instance, how, how do you square this idea of blessed is the man who follows God's law and essentially this righteous man? And not right, of course, Christ, let's take Christ out of the picture for a second. All the people who are not perfect, right? These men that are, are still, we would describe them as, as righteous, not in a salvific kind of way that they've justified themselves to the righteousness, but people that generally are... Um, faithful before God and, are, and, and want to pursue his, his ways and seek after him for their, um, for their saving mercy. Those people. Um, it seems like that's in a certain way of, of what we're reading about here, of these blessed people that are like that, yet they become martyrs. They are sawn in two, as we read about in Hebrews. Um, how do we square those? They're blessed and they're sawn in two. David. Yeah, so that's one way of thinking of it is in this kind of bigger picture, there's a blessing that's going on even uh, in that act of the, of the suffering. Um, I, I was thinking too of, um, you know, we talked about Joseph before. Just think of, think of his existence. Do you think if you asked him, maybe even like before all of the, you know, he gets risen up to, to power in Egypt and he can see how God was using these um, evil things against him for good. Let's say before that, and he's being righteous. He's responding. He's he's responding with hatred, with essentially kindness and and righteousness. Um, would he say, as he's you know there in the um, Potiphar's house as a servant, and then in the dungeon there as a as a prisoner, and <coughs> these different. Um, kind of stages of, of having suffering and bad things happen to him. Um, would he say that I am not blessed? I, I think in a sense, maybe he would. This is kind of my own speculation on this. But I think there's still a blessedness. when, If you talk to Christ who lived a life of suffering, I think he would also say I lived a blessed life. If you talk to the, uh, the um, apostles likewise, they wouldn't say, well, my life would be a lot better if I had just rejected God's law and turned my back on him. And then I wouldn't have had, um, I wouldn't have gone to prison here. I wouldn't have been beaten there. They would say, I'm glad I did those things. Now, some of that is, um, uh, you know, also looking like Abraham, looking to that future, looking to the promises of God. That's probably the most important uh, part of how they're blessed in that is in the, the eternal uh, score. But I think there's even a, uh, a sense in this life where, 
what else should we be doing, right, is the, uh, to, to live the, that blessed life. Um, and so we know kind of in this fallen world, um, we'll, we'll face these, these trials, but we face them in a blessed way by following God's word. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a great passage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and there you see, I think, of marrying of both those. You know, they're blessed now, and they're blessed into the into the future and in the eternal state as well. Um, so, yes, sir. Yeah, that's great, um, and I, yeah, that reframing is necessary, and I, and I think that's probably the most important way to look at this. I think the only, again, on the ditch thing that I, I think is good to bring out is there is promises, and we read it in the Confession, and you read it in Psalm 119, there, there are promises today in, in this life. You know, if you go and you live a life that is wholly rejecting of God's law in every way you can think of it, you are going to suffer consequences and consequences, you know, over and over and over again. Now, th this is also, uh, I think, proverbial. Like, the elders have been reading through and oftentimes saying, these things are proverbi proverbially true, right? Um, there, there's not a mathematical equation associated with these. But I think you, you, you see that with this, in this life, blessings and curses that, that, that come as well. Um, so I, I think we need to also hold those things in tensions a bit, too, while also no doubt, um, keeping our focus on um, God's promises of ultimate um, blessing in Christ and in the eternal state. Let me move on because we're running out of time quickly. Two last sections that I might squeeze together or cover them just quickly. Uh, section four that I brought out was God's word is fixed Forever. And let me just, I didn't do a whole section on this one, but just let's read uh, verses 89 and 90. It says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Um, so a question on that, you know, um, if there's no answers, I'll, I'll treat it rhetorically. But uh, why, uh, why is this, etern this eternality or this permanence of God's law here such an important point of praise? You know, he says this multiple times. It's fixed forever and all this. Frank? Right. Yeah. You don't have to be 
Yeah. Yeah, this is closely bound up with the eternality of God and his, yeah, and his not changing. So imagine if we had an erratic God, and here we are trying to fix ourselves on something, you know. This is why he's praised so often as being the rock, you know, this, this bedrock kind of thing that you can count on and it's not going to move. And that, that's really important for people that kind of on, on the next point, if we go to that, quickly, when you think of our dependence on God's mercy and grace, to blend these two things together. If we are dependent upon God and his mercy, and he is not, uh, you know, that rock, that unchanging rock, how confident are you going to be in that mercy? Well, maybe today I am. We'll see. Let's keep our fingers crossed for tomorrow. You know, there's no keeping your fingers crossed. How might God... um, respond here. And that blends a lot of what, what the themes here as well, this idea that we know how God speak, uh, how he is because he's told us his law and his statutes. We know that those, uh, we can count on those because he doesn't change. Um, so yeah, thanks Frank. I, I think that really put the, um, kind of put the finger on, on the key thing. You can look up later, because I think it's just a, it might be a little bit of an aside, but look up Matthew 5, 17 to 19, too, and Jesus' words, speaking of the, uh, the law and the prophets and that he did not come to abolish them. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's just fascinating words um, from, from Jesus as well to correct us in this idea of, oh, we're Christians now, so we toss out the law. That, that was not Jesus' view. Okay, so the last thing here is we run out of time. Um, let's read verses 57 and 58 and look at the theme of this psalmist relying on the promise and the grace of God. For all this talk of law, and again, this distinctions of how we think of law and all this, the law is not opposed to reliance on grace. Um, you would not get that idea from reading Psalm 119 because over and over again, he's appealing to the mercy of God and the promise of God. Um, and the grace of God, uh, 57, 58. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. So you also see in um, 41, um, it, it's God's promise and his steadfast love that anchors our salvation, his mercy uh, is required in order that we might live in, in verse 77. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think maybe that's a good theme for us to leave on is to make sure we keep the, the, the law and the context uh, of this is not replacing grace. <laughs> we are wholly dependent on grace. The psalmist who's praising, singing the praises of God's law is singing the praises of his mercy and grace that he's wholly dependent on. Um, and so just interesting to me that in this longest of psalms and um, this repetitive psalm of talking about the law of God, the criticality of the law of God, the blessings that flow from keeping the law of God, this psalmist throwing himself on the mercy and the grace and the promises of God. Um, And so I uh, I think that's a good way for us to um, I guess I com- commend it to you as, as you think through these things. Let, let me leave with um, just reading the section 129 to 136. And I think this one is a good summary of all these points. Maybe the, um, there was one of them that I think it wasn't covered as directly in this section. I think maybe the um, eternal fixedness of God's law. But think of all, all the other um, things we talk about, the blessedness of following God's law, the, uh, the longing for God's statutes, the struggle f- uh, with evil, and the dependence upon God's grace as we finish with uh, 129 to 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. 
Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your law, for your word, for your instruction, which is uh, a, a light to our path, a lamp for our feet. Um, we, we thank you for the orienting um, uh, beauty and righteousness that it provides to our life. We thank you also uh, for the way that it's not detached from you. The psalmist never spoke of this glory of your law in a way that was um, that, that was separated from you and, and your own goodness and, and glory. And so we give you praise um, uh, this morning. We especially um, give you praise for sending your son, who was the perfect law keeper, who um, truly um, uh, was a blessed man following and loving uh, the law, coming to, to do uh, this. And so all of our hope uh, is in Christ, and we thank you for him. Um, we ask now as we uh, have some time of refreshment and then a uh, time of worship that you would uh, be with us, that you would uh, bless not only our worship service here and the preaching of the word here, but um, as the sun uh, goes across the earth all uh, throughout the day, may your name be praised and your kingdom uh, expanded. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.